Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Kudos. Who would come out on a day like this to visit? But glad that we get to be family uh, together. Aunt Sue is here. You're visiting, right? My folks are in town, so at least a few. Um, But glad to be here this morning to worship our God, to also pick up in our series, The Songs of Jesus, a series in which we've been walking through and plugging in the playlist of those songs that both shape Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy that both shaped Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. And doing that in order that, in the hope that, by plugging in Jesus' playlist, those songs will begin to shape our lives as well. And, and, and grow in us a whole other level of appreciation for who Jesus was and who Jesus came to be and the work Jesus came to accomplish. And it's a playlist found in the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Old Testament, in which we're going to pick up today in Psalm 22. We'll get to Psalm 23, but we're going to pick up in Psalm 22. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And as you do, let me just explain why we're jumping here, having left off in Psalm 3. And in one sense, it's because we're, we're only devoting 15 weeks to the Psalms leading up to Easter. So at least in one sense, we've got to pick and choose. But in another sense, even more so, we're, we're jumping here because as best we can, we're in this series trying to see how this playlist fits together and how these 150 songs tell a single story, the story of God's word, which is all about God's promised king. Something Psalm 22, and after that Psalm 23 will help us see. And I can catch you up if you'd like on what happens in between. In Psalm 3, we were introduced to David the one to whom God's king was promised, to be a king like David and come in the line of David. A David, though, who when we met him was already on the run and who continues running all the way through to Psalm 18. If you read those, they, they, they together sound from Psalm 3 to 18 like the soundtrack to The Fugitive constantly on the run, consistently on the run, and raise the question then, what kind of king will reign forever when the king the promise was made to can't even reign for now? The answer is, a king who, according to Psalm 19, finally reigns according to God's word. But David couldn't do it. He didn't do it. And in Psalm 20 then, has to place his hope of having such a king entirely outside of himself. Saying, Lord, save the king. And then in Psalm 21, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. 
But to what extent can God's king, and by extension, God's people, trust God to keep God's promises? That's the question that's answered in Psalm 22, where we're going to pick up this morning. And I want to begin by reading it, even though it's a little more lengthy of a psalm than we've looked at so far. And as I read, let me encourage you to listen for the different individuals of which this psalm speaks. First of David, then of Jesus, and finally of us. Again, Psalm 22, verses 1 to 31, this is God's word. It begins with this inscription. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They'll wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are put out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. And when he cried to him, for you 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before we've even had a chance to see it, I want to thank you for the faithfulness that you've shown to your Son, Jesus Christ. That as much as this world wrote him off as forsaken on the cross, and as much as he voiced that himself, You proved in the end that you didn't when you raised him from the dead. And that this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, having put our faith in him, we can bank on your faithfulness to us as well. That through our own trials and tragedies, you will not forsake us either. And today, we pray it would be so that our faith would ever grow in you and your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is no music in a rest, but there is the making of music in it. That was written by the leading art critic of the English Victorian era, a man by the name of John Ruskin. There is no music in a rest, but there is the making of music in it. He'd write, in our whole life melody, the music is broken off here and there by rests. Yet we ought not foolishly think we have come to the end of the theme. When God sends a time of sickness, disappointed plans, frustrated efforts, and makes a sudden pause in the choral hymn of our lives with rests that are not restful. We rightly lament But how does the musician read the rest? By beating the time and catching up the next note as if no breaking place had come between. He says, not without design does God write the music of our lives. 
such that the rest ought not be slurred over, nor omitted, nor allowed to destroy the melody or change the key. And if we can't, we ought to leave it to God to beat the time on our behalf and catch up the next note as he has written it. Because again, though there is no music in a rest, there is the making of music in it. Which is one of the central takeaways of Psalm 22. Whether heard first as a theme song for David or second as a theme song for Jesus. Or lastly, as a theme song for you. That whether for David or Jesus or you, while there may be no music in the rest, there is the making of music in it. And while we typically take a passage like this verse by verse, today we're going to instead back off a bit and sweep through it three times through so we can hear how it sounds first as a theme song for David the one who wrote it, before we then look at it as a theme song for Jesus, and lastly, as a theme song for you. First, as a theme song for David. And here, focus in with me on where this psalm begins, with this cry of dereliction, this cry in which David asks, why? Why have I been disregarded and deserted? And why have I been abandoned by the one being who was supposed to have my back? Ever feel like that? David did. Saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when you were my God? Why so far from saving me, or verse 2, from answering me when I cry? Because you're not supposed to be the silent one in this relationship. You're not supposed to be the introvert. After all, you spoke the world into being. You're the one who called forth Abraham from his homeland. You gave the law to Moses, spoke the law to Moses. And you were the one who said through your prophet that I was going to be king in the first place. You are a speaking God. So why now do I feel like I'm stuck in an echo chamber, David says, of my own cries for help? I spoke recently with a friend who, with his wife, have had a pretty difficult time getting pregnant. They have one child that was somewhat of a miracle. They've tried again and again since, but have been unsuccessful, which have been for them one of, if not the most difficult experiences of their lives. Neither come from a Christian home. They don't have the support of a strong family. And so their hope was to create that for themselves and for their kids. And have given that over to the Lord, thinking that he brought them together. 
He, he led them to Christ when, when they weren't even looking for it. And so why wouldn't he desire this as well for them and their kids? And yet over just the last eight months, nine months, not to mention the years that this has gone on, yet just in the last nine months or so, they've had three miscarriages. The last of which she actually had to go through labor and deliver a stillborn 10-week-old baby which landed them in the hospital with a little lifeless body sitting over on the counter. Parents are here today. They could share a similar story, as could many others probably. And yet, not to minimize that, but how much more can, can David, as the king in whom everyone else was meant to hope, cry to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The agony for David is only increased by, by the fact that all the stories of old say it ought to be otherwise. This is what's happening in verses 3 to 5, which aren't really an expression of hope as much as they are an expression of disbelief. Yet you are holy? Supposedly enthroned on the praises of your people? In you they trusted and you delivered them. Remember? When they cried, you rescued. But not for me? I didn't ask for this throne. You gave it to me. Where are you when I need you the most? Naturally leads to two conclusions. One of two conclusions. Either you're not real, or I'm not really yours. The first option, rightly so, isn't even entertained by David. But the second... Well, along with David, isn't this the conclusion so many of us come to? And not just us, not just even David. But the conclusion that everyone looking on from the outside comes to as well. This is what trust gets you? All those outside, this is what they say in verse 8. They, as they mock, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him. For the Lord supposedly delights in him. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. To which David adds that I didn't even have a choice. I didn't even have a choice. See verse 10? That I was cast on you from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So what? So be not far from me, because this is your doing, not mine. For trouble is near, he says, and there is none to help. You grew this trust in me, and now you're not going to prove yourself trustworthy? Trustworthy? 
What is that? This is a theme song for David, whether from the beginning of his reign when he was running from Saul or from the end of his reign when he was running from his own son. And despite all of the circumstances that may have been swirling around him, catch this, all the different times that he may have sung this song, what's his one concern? That God would not be far off. Which is why David repeats the plea in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. And there's a reason for that. Because all the other stuff only matters insofar as it suggests that God is far off. Isn't that true? All the other stuff in life all the hardships, all the pain, all the suffering, it really only matters because it suggests to us that God is far off. All the bulls that encompass me, all the lions that ravage me, my being poured out like a drink and my bones being put out of joint the dogs and the evildoers, they only matter if it's true. That is, verse 15 says, you're the one who laid me in the dust and left me to death. This is a theme song for David about the one thing that matters most, about God and the silence of God. And by the end about when God finally shows up. But I want to skip ahead because this is second, also a theme song for Jesus. Because as much as David could have sung this throughout his life, how much more weight did this psalm take on when Christ sang it while he was hanging on the cross? And that's what many scholars believe. We hear tidbits of it. But that's what many scholars believe. That this was the psalm that lingered on Jesus' lips when he was led to and nailed to and hung to the cross. This is what he was singing. Which explains then why it's it's this psalm that is most quoted from and most alluded to in the New Testament. Because this is what Jesus died singing. So it became the filter for how all of his followers afterwards processed that event. And not for nothing either, but because everything David wrote about, Jesus experienced at a whole nother level. See, David might have felt forsaken by God, but... At least he was running, or at least at the end of his life he was running, according to his own deserts. He did it to himself. But not Jesus. All Jesus did was give up his heavenly throne. All Jesus did was take on the form of a servant. Submit himself to the confines of flesh. All Jesus did was obey He was the king who lived by God's word. 
all of his life and all the way to death, even death on a cross. Such that the cry with which David began took on a significance on the lips of Jesus that David couldn't have dreamed of. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I'm not just your king, Jesus would say. I'm your one and only son. Similarly, verse 2. That while David cried out and got no answer, how much more for Jesus? Because the sky itself went dark the day Jesus died. David was mocked as one in whom God delighted. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him, for the Lord delights in him. But Jesus was the one for whom we're told heaven itself was ripped open that God might say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet about whom by the end of life, Everyone would stand around and say even more, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God really desires him. That's their words. That's a quote. Go look at Matthew 27. It's the same thing. But how much more spoken about Jesus? David on a number of occasions was surrounded by enemies. But how much more Jesus on the cross, who not only was at risk of being captured by enemy hands, but who was delivered into those hands according to the very purpose of the God who so supposedly delighted in him. Which is why at almost a dozen points, the writers of the New Testament connect the dots between Jesus' crucifixion and the cry of dereliction found in the first half of Psalm 22. Because as much as David wrote it, how much more did Jesus live it? Which as an aside is really how we ought to think about these psalms. This is that, that thing we talked about last fall called biblical theology uh, and reading the psalms as part of a bigger story. Not as predictions about the specifics of Jesus' life, as if we've got to go find the verse over here or the one over there behind that other rock as if only this verse or that one had to do with Jesus. But rather as pictures, to see these psalms as pictures that found their fulfillment in Jesus in their entirety. This is what the New Testament authors are trying to say. That's what it means when a writer of the New Testament says, in Jesus some verse was fulfilled. Not that it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilled in David, but that in Jesus, these things were filled to overflowing. And a writer would often, in the New Testament, will often zero in on something specific as a way of referring to the whole. To say, remember what we knew of David? 
how much more Jesus Christ. Otherwise, why would every gospel writer, think about this for a minute, why would every gospel writer draw attention back to this psalm, Psalm 22, verse 18, and the fact that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes? But then, not one of them mentioned verse 16 and how they pierced his hands and feet. How is that possible if they really care only about the specific and they're saying this was a prediction and they wouldn't even talk about the piercing of Jesus' hand and feet? No, it's the whole thing. The New Testament writers are saying, look, they're casting lots. This is all that we knew of David. The whole bit. Not that it was some predictive secret code that was, that was hidden in the rest. But to say that what we knew back then, how much more today? Because the reference of a particular verse was meant to call to mind the particular passage from which it was a part. It was prophetic, not, as we often think about it, predictive. It had to end with Jesus in every way, not just in a few random ways along the way. And so with Psalm 22, not just to connect the dots, they would do this, not just to connect the dots with the the cry of verses 1 to 21, but they will reference the specifics along the way in this dozen or so places in order to connect Jesus with the answer that is assumed in verses 22 and following. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Because here too, when, when, when did this ever happen to David, right? When did this ever happen to the guy who wrote it? At least to this extent. Maybe verses 22 to 26, that upon some deliverance, there was a, a great praising of God among God's people. Maybe. Among the brothers, as it says, or the congregation, among the offspring of Jacob. But what about verses 27 to the end? David is talking of something here that he never saw to this degree. When in David's life did the ends of the earth ever remember and turn to the Lord? Or the the families of the nations worship before God. It never happened. Except when David's greater son, the son of God himself, was delivered from death on David's behalf. So that every time this is alluded to in the New Testament, it's echoing the entire picture of what David was or should have been or would have been but couldn't be because Jesus was the only one that could. Delivered Jesus not just from before the gates of death, 
but delivered from within its very courts, from the valley of the shadow of death on the cross. And from being buried in a tomb, when after three days Jesus was raised to life again, that all might know, that all might have known, there may not be music in the rest, but there is the making of music in it. And that God's king, God's one true king, and by extension God's people, can trust God to keep God's promises all the way through death itself. Wow, right? Which is how this psalm, after being a theme song for David, and even more a theme song for Jesus, by extension, can finally be a theme song for you and me. See, life provides plenty of opportunities to sing the first half of this song on our own. Of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whether because of the death of a child or an unborn child or a spouse or dad, a friend, a neighbor. Whether as a society with, with a Another mass shooting, one mass shooting after another. The genocides of history or the mass executions as the nations rage. We can sing the first half on our own perfectly well. But in Jesus, insofar as we place our trust in Jesus, in God's King, and in God's one and only Son, we can then likewise confidently sing with Jesus the second half as we confidently place our trust in God because no matter what we face today, he's already paid the price, already provided the means, already paved the way through death to life. which makes us at the end of it part of that people yet unborn, verse 31, who have come and can proclaim that he has done it. Let me say to conclude then that this ought to challenge us in at least five ways. So ought to challenge us in at least five ways, if that's what this psalm is all about. First, it ought to challenge us not to lose hope when God seems silent. And to remember that before we ever had to face God's apparent silence, David had to face it as God's king. Even more, Jesus had to face it as God's son. And that in both cases before us, and in ours as well afterwards, what seemed like silence and, and could have been understood as apathy or interpreted as indifference, in the end turned out to be for our good and for God's glory. 
that even then God was at work and God was in control and God was reigning like God always does. So first, do not lose hope when God seems silent. Second, Psalm 22 ought to challenge us not to equate present pain with absolute abandonment. It wasn't true for Jesus, and it certainly isn't true for Jesus' followers. After all, Jesus is the proof. He's the proof that that isn't so. Not just because Jesus wasn't abandoned himself, but because sending Jesus was God's way to take care of the pain and prove that he hadn't abandoned us. So don't lose hope when God seems silent and don't mistake present pain for absolute abandonment. And third, make sure like David and like Jesus after him to keep the main thing the main thing, which isn't about present pain, but about whether we've been abandoned. Right? All the other stuff only matters if it means that God has abandoned us. But if he doesn't, if it doesn't mean that, and if he hasn't abandoned us, then whatever we're going through, whatever that feels like today, doesn't actually matter for tomorrow. And that's true no matter how bad it gets. Because looking at Jesus, we know that while there may be no music in the rest, there is the making of music in it. And the song isn't done, right? So keep the main thing the main thing. Which leads then to number four. Psalm 22 ought to challenge us and how we lament. See, lament is a good thing. Lamenting is a good thing, a natural thing, a necessary thing. It's why God has given us so many psalms to help us lament. Yet if like with Psalm 22 or with the collection of psalms generally... If lament isn't meant to to have the last word, as it doesn't, here or in the Psalms collectively, we shouldn't make or mistake like it does. Because like Paul says, we don't grieve or we don't lament as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And what else is there to lament if we don't have to lament falling asleep or dying in this world? So Psalm 22 ought to challenge how we lament. Do not lament like lament has the last word. And then fifth, let Psalm 22 challenge you to remember that while lament doesn't have the last word, God does. 
It's interesting. The final statement in Psalm 22 can either be translated as he has done it or it's just as legitimate to translate it as it is done, as in fulfilled, as in finalized, as in finished. Which given how much Jesus seemed to have this psalm on his mind when he was hanging on his cross, quite possibly suggests that this is what Jesus was alluding to when he cried those very same words from that cross. It is finished. Because lament does not have the last word. God does. So don't lose hope when God seems silent. Don't mistake present pain for absolute abandonment. Keep the main thing the main thing, which is whether you've been abandoned, which you haven't. Don't lament like lament has the last word because lastly, the last word has already been had in Jesus. And believe it or not, Psalm 22 finds its most natural conclusion, its most natural response in Psalm 23, which is what I'm going to invite the worship team back up now to lead us in singing once again. That's why it's printed out so you can take it home and if you know what those notes mean, you can figure out and do that on your own because, again, the, the most natural conclusion to Psalm 22 is Psalm 23. It would have been read like that, sung like that, and which we have the privilege of singing today as we close. So would you stand and sing? That's the question. To what extent can God's king, and by extension God's people, trust God to keep God's promises? And according to Psalm 22, all the way to the gates of death and with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death, right on out the other side. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R-G.